This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 17th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, broadcasting this week from Phoenix, and we're going here on the day when our individual returns are actually due this year. This will be the May 17th date, also the original due date for 990s. That one was not changed. So we'll be looking at a couple of due dates today. Obviously, some of you I expect will be listening to this after we have gotten rid of this uh, deadline. So I think it'll be later in the week. Uh, Some of you got everything extended a week ago, and you're probably thinking there's no big deal with this deadline. So not really an issue for you. But we'll talk to both of you this week. Let's start out with what we're going to talk about today. And not a lot went on. In fact, most of what went on were announcements right at the end of the week. So we'll talk a bit about those. One which we'll talk about is the IRS issued a news release indicating that they're going to start sending out uh, revisions and checks for returns that were impacted by the American Rescue Plan Act. That includes the taxation of unemployment compensation and the repayment of excess advanced premium tax credits. They'll be making those adjustments and beginning to issue refunds for the returns impacted by that. The IRS also during the week released the health savings account and high deductible health plan numbers for 2022. That always comes out early in the year for the following year. So we have those numbers. Now, again, that's for 2022, not 2021. So don't get ahead of yourself here. We already knew the 21 numbers. These are the numbers for next year. The IRS issued an announcement this week uh, clearing up something that some people had been concerned about. The IRS told us that the census is not going to change the boundaries of qualified opportunity zones. Uh, We'll talk about why people were concerned that it might, and also how the IRS concluded that no, it wouldn't do that. And we had uh, from the director of the Office of Financial Responsibility this week, uh, she was speaking before the American Bar Association's virtual uh, meeting. And she indicated that the IRS plans to roll out the more advanced version of their automated power of attorney submission program that they hope to go live in July. This is a program that will let you, when you submit your POAs, go directly into the CAF file rather than having to go somewhere where an IRS employee would then later have to update information and put it into the file. So we'll be looking at that. So let's start out first with the IRS's news release, IR 2021-111, entitled The IRS Begins Correcting Tax Returns for Unemployment Compensation Exclusion, Periodic Payments to be Made May through Summer. This is, as I said, news release 2021-111, came out on the 14th of May. As you may remember, the American Rescue Plan Act, among other things, made a couple of changes that impacted returns for 2020, that had already been filed. And so the IRS had to come up with a method of dealing with that. They had announced previously that they were going to be recomputing and issuing refunds uh, to individuals who had reported taxable unemployment that under the ARPA rules would no longer be taxable, as well as people who had repaid excess advanced premium, uh, basically the advanced premium credit, the premium refund, premium, yeah, Yes, the advanced premium tax credit, get that right. So we're going to be fixing those. This notice talks, for the most part, about the unemployment and notes that the IRS now is actually beginning phase one of the payment. Now, it notes that the IRS had 
identified over 10 million taxpayers who appear to be potentially affected by this. They had filed tax returns before the passage of the American Rescue Plan Act. They had reported taxable unemployment compensation. So the IRS is going to go back and look at those 10 million returns and attempt to determine if they should be issuing refunds to those taxpayers. Now, they're going to then go ahead and make that computation. They had already admitted that they were going to be in a phased approach. Uh, they're going to go and do the simplest returns first. Those simplest returns are what are currently underway. So that program has already gone. Now, the phase one returns are basically going to be single taxpayers, uh, essentially starting with, in many cases, uh, those with no dependents working up to those with dependents. In many cases, the IRS will be able to compute the proper refund. And they will actually make some adjustments. They did note that, in fact, they could correct the earned income tax credit without qualifying children and recovery rebate credits being made automatically as part of this process. Because conceivably, the change in taxable unemployment could change the amount of recovery, uh, you know, basically the recovery rebate you'd qualify for. So it could increase that payment. We also have that earned income credit could very well be impacted. And if there are no qualifying children or if they have the information, the IRS will be able to compute that. However, they do note that in some cases, if the credit was not claimed in the original return, the IRS will not have the information necessary to make the computation, such as the earned income tax credit on qualifying children. That may require taxpayers to still prepare and amend the return once they've gotten this first pass refund because there'll be other items that need to be fixed. And that's going to cause us some problems uh, for people. So you've got to keep your eye on whether they do it this. Now, this payment's going to continue all through the summer. And the IRS notes that more complex returns will begin upon completion of the first phase and involves couples filing as married joint. So the first people to get refunds should be those filing single, head of household. Then we're going to work up to married joint. Married joint's the most complicated scenario because there you have two taxpayers, each one of which faces a separate $10,400 limit. So they're going to work their way through to that group. You're going to start with the simplest ones, the single taxpayers, where basically you can just take a look at the unemployment line. If it goes over 10-4, then you see if they qualified or is there adjusted AGI low enough, and that's a simpler calculation. Again, with married, it's a little more involved because you've got to be able to split out the spouses in that mix as opposed to just the total. Now, near the end of this thing, they also kind of threw in almost as an afterthought, oh yeah, there was that advanced premium tax credit bit that we had. Remember, under the Affordable Care Act, when you go down and get your health care at the exchange and you qualify, you know, they're going to ask you for your expected AGI and they'll compute how much of a subsidy you should get and they'll start applying that subsidy. But again, that's based on estimated amounts you're going to make for the year. So when you get to the end of the year under the Affordable Care Act, you are to essentially go back and recompute what the real amount of subsidy was you should have gotten. And if you got too little subsidy, you qualify for a larger credit. That's not impacted here. But if it turns out you took a subsidy that was greater than what you qualified for, then you had to repay some or all of that difference. There were certain limitations on what had to be repaid, but effectively, if you came in and and estimated your income was 
going to be lower than it turned out to be, you end up having to write checks back. Well, the IRS, this, or I should say Congress this year, retroactively said, nah, for 2020, you're not going to do that. So obviously, anybody that filed a return prior to the ARPA's enactment and went ahead and repaid some of that advanced premium tax credit, well, that now is effectively a refund. So the IRS did make clear they're planning to put that in there as well. So again, there's a number of things that could come, and that refund would come at the same time if somebody was also getting unemployment, that they got their unemployment refund. So we'll be looking at all of that as one. Next up, the IRS's annual announcement in Revenue Procedure 2021-10, issued on the 13th of May. And they're, this time, they're going to tell us what their health savings account and high deductible health plan numbers are for this year. Now, Congress, of course, inflation adjusted this years ago. And this is always our first inflation adjusted number of the year. Comes out well before any of the other numbers because essentially it uses an earlier set of numbers in the price index so they can compute this early. So it's not unusual that we're sitting here in May and we're getting these numbers for 2022. The one problem that confuses some people, if you don't read carefully, is this is so early in 2022 still, or 2021 still, I should say, that people sometimes pick these up and saying, oh, these are this year's. No, they're not this year's numbers. They're next year's numbers. Even though we're not halfway through the year, we have next year's numbers in this regard. And so the maximum contribution to a health savings account next year, assuming you have qualifying high deductible health plan coverage, will be $3,650 for self-only coverage and $7,300 for family coverage. As well, on your high deductible health plan to qualify as an HDHP, and remember, that has to be, you have to have that, but it has to be the only coverage except for accepted coverage that the covered person has. And the minimum deductible for a self-only plan next year will be $1,400. And the minimum for a family plan will be double that at $2,800. That means that, you know, if you have a deductible that's lower than that, that's not a high deductible health plan. But for HSA plans, we also have a cap on the maximum amount that can be required to be paid out of pocket. That's also set by inflation adjustment. And next year for an H for a health savings account or for an HCHP uh, program, the maximum out-of-pocket will be $7,050 for self-only and $14,100 for a family plan. Okay. Now, obviously, the deductible could go as high as that. There's nothing preventing you from having a $7,050 deductible self-only plan that pays 100% after that point. Similarly, a $14,100 family plan that pays 100% after that point. Those are the ways this can work. So that's there and involved. Finally, this year, we did add something a little bit new because we now have these accepted benefit HRAs that were put in by the IRS and regulations. And these had a cap on the maximum amount for these accepted benefit HRAs that you could have go into the plan each year or go into the program, additional funds available each year because you can carry these over. And the maximum amount you can add to it in 2022 will be $1,800. Again, all of these take effect for 2022. It's Revenue Procedure 2021-10. Next up, we're going to go to Announcement 2021-10. 
This came out on Friday the 14th. And this goes back to the interaction of the census. Remember, we just got through a census in 2020. You might have forgotten about that because everything else that went on in 2020. The census seemed like not one of those things that were kind of like, I guess, yeah, there's a census somewhere, right? In any event, though, we had a census last year. And that census, in addition to being used for setting, you know, congressional, how many Congress people each state gets and how we divide those districts, it also is done for, you know, establishing certain census tracts. And if you remember, the Qualified Opportunity Zones added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act applied to qualified investments, qualified businesses inside of Qualified Opportunity Zones. And those were census tracts that were basically nominated by the state for qualification. Now, under the rules, that qualification and those areas had to be locked down by a date, dependent varied somewhat, but there were dates in 2018. By the end of 2018, all of these had to be set. Now, of course, the problem is in 2018, we obviously didn't have 2020 census information. So we're working on, 2020, on 2010 census uh, information, 2010 uh, census tracts. So the question became, now that we're going to roll over into a new census, uh, do we now have to switch over to the 2020 tracks? And if we do, what does that do to the old opportunity zones? I mean, you theoretically could have an area that comes in. We could have an area that left the opportunity zone. And what would happen to you? You know, can we now go invest in that new area? And what if we're actually sitting in the area that's now out? And so the IRS was, you know, asked, what's going to happen here? I mean, obviously, you know, we have a different thing. It's a different department that's handling this a little differently, do we have to go modify our opportunity zones now? Well, the IRS, not terribly surprisingly, because as you may guess, it wouldn't work very well if those boundaries were changing. The IRS said, look, the law specifically required these to be designated in 2018. The law provides no methodology for changing the boundaries of one of these districts. So there's, you know, we can't go, the state can't pull one out now and put a different one in. So the IRS said, obviously, what Congress meant was you're going to use the tracks that existed and were available in 2018. We're not going to worry about any changes that may have been made in a later census. And so because of that, we're not going to worry about the changes. That actually makes it way simpler to deal with this. So, you know. We'll kind of see how this works, but it was a concern of some people. So the IRS felt they had to put an announcement, which they did on Friday, announcement 2021-10. So saying, yeah, don't worry about that. Your op zones are still what they were. We didn't add any place you could now go invest in. And we didn't pull the rug out from under a business now that happened to be located in some place that's outside the zone. Won't have an impact whatsoever. Finally, this week, I told you there really wasn't anything big this week. So, you know, we're still sitting there waiting on a few things. Nothing really huge happened this week. Didn't even have something like Michael Jackson's estate this week uh, to worry about that we could have spent some time on that might not really have been that big a deal, but it would have been something to work on. One thing that did happen this week, though, was that the American Bar Association had their online uh, meeting. You know, basically, the American Bar Association section of taxation at a virtual meeting, which is like, you know, they used to have their 
meetings, right? Real live in-person meetings. Now they had their virtual meetings, so it's still virtual. Uh, we'll, we'll see how many more stay virtual now that we had the guidance that came out this week about vaccinated adults being able to essentially go back to what they were doing before. So we'll see what that does in terms of meetings like this when the you know who's going to be the first group that's going to feel comfortable to try a real live meeting and even better when are the people who would have attended the meeting be comfortable with being at a real live meeting my own guess is at least temporarily we're going to see a lot of hybrid uh, meetings where we'll have live plus broadcast i think that'll be happening a lot you know at some point that that's going to be how we'll start transitioning to see how things happen because I think it's going to take some time before everybody just is comfortable coming back in and that's part of the fun so we'll see and also I think again I've watched this over a few years I think people have become more and more comfortable with getting this type of information on the net you know getting it broadcast virtually certainly over the years I've been lecturing here in Arizona and I have seen more and more of my classes because we normally do both broadcast and have people sitting, you know, sitting at home, sitting in their offices, wherever they may be. And I've certainly seen more and more of the class ending up in those off-site locations rather than on-site. Wondering if this whole pandemic is going to accelerate that trend. So it's a little discussion as to where we go and when we get it. But one neat thing about this ABA meeting is they always have a lot of key IRS personnel, and you often find out some interesting information. Now, in addition to this one, which we're going to talk about here, that relates to uh, the submission of powers of attorney by CPAs, EAs, and attorneys directly into the CAF system, uh, they also were discussing the fact that, as was noted by a lot of people who were attending the virtual meeting, that the IRS seems to be increasing the number of examinations of LLCs, uh, members who are claiming they do not owe self-employment tax. And apparently we were told by the representative at that point uh, that from the IRS that, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. And they plan to do more and strongly suggest you go read the old Rankmeyer case. So just, but there's a lot of things that come out at this bar meeting. One of the more interesting one, though, this week, and I take it from because tax analysts, tax notes today, tax analysts covers in tax notes today, this meeting every time. And an article we found from Jonathan Curry on the 7th, that's going to be published on the 17th. It's actually interesting the way tax notes work, tax notes today work. The one published on the 17th is actually posted up on the 15th, so I see it before I record. So I'm using it based on that because it was Friday's session. But the article entitled Third-Party Authorization Web Portal for Tax Pros Coming Soon. And this was an interesting discussion. What's happened now is the IRS, this involves uh, Sharon Fisk, who is the director of the IRS Office of Professional Responsibility. So this is what she was talking about there. All of us in tax have noticed that the IRS processing of a lot of things has slowed down dramatically. I mean, we are still sitting on, if you read the reports, uh, they're still stating that there are still a few million uh, paper returns for 2019 that have not been processed by the IRS. I think many of us have had some craziness going on with notices we've received where, you know, 
you can't get a hold of anybody at the IRS. You can't actually stop things. Uh, there's been all kinds of things going on. So it's been really messy. And not helping matters has been that this, the whole process of getting your powers of attorney into the CAF has also slowed down dramatically. So therefore, if you do manage to get lucky and get through on a phone call to somebody at the IRS, they can't verify your power of attorney, which means you have to run around a bit, hopefully fax it to them while they're still on the line. It doesn't drop off. And all of that, which just makes a total mess of the whole thing and slows the process down. So the good news is, you know, the IRS did earlier this year, they, they, they started with one thing, which it's, it was nice in one sense, but not really, because it didn't solve the real problem of the timing. But you may remember we talked about earlier this year, back in January, the IRS was going to allow you to basically scan our, and send up powers of attorney directly to the IRS portal. Now, the problem was, A, it helps, and B, you could use things like digital signatures. So, And they were pretty open about the types there, so things like DocuSign and other routines. And they didn't have strong KBA requirements as long as you had worked with the clients before. You didn't have to go through any additional hoops for authentication. If it was a brand new client, you had to properly authenticate and get information to back up so you know who the person is. But if it was not a brand new client, you could basically, if you'd work with them for years, you were able to essentially get a digital signature from them, submit that up, and you were good. So th this whole thing kind of works. So it all worked, and you know we got that together. Now what the IRS is doing is saying that effectively we are going to uh, try to make it so that we'll be able to directly submit. We'd already had talks about that, and the IRS had, ish, had noted that they plan to do this. Now we are going to actually see this. The IRS claims, and this is what Sharon Fist noted, was that they are hoping to get this. They're going to set up a portal that would allow the submission of online equivalents of Forms 2848 and 8821. It'll be a dedicated interface for tax professionals and will integrate with taxpayers' online accounts. This will allow the CAF to be to go directly into the CAF, meaning that immediately the professional should be authorized to do those things that you're authorized to do with the power of attorney. And that should include things like getting access to the taxpayer's transcripts in a much faster process than what you have to worry about now. So essentially, we, we should be in a better position going forward. Now, the goal is to get this running by July. So we'll see. Now, they, they've really just said this summer previously. Now, the director of OPR is telling us that they are aiming for a July date for this. Uh, we will hopefully see that happen uh, if we do, and we'll hopefully see it working. They claim that it should work in this case. Uh, it will only be, only be able to have to use something different if the system is down for up date or other catastrophic electrical and then she's quoted as saying wi-fi outage i'm hoping they have actually hardwired network cables somewhere besides wi-fi but whatever you know we'll, we'll be able to uh get things submitted so that's coming up and definitely planned for the service so we're, we're going to kind of see how that all runs so we'll take that we'll go from there and you know see how that program goes Again, that's something which hopefully, you know, will make it a little bit simpler to do our tax practice. 
So this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments here for the week of May the 17th. I'm Ed Zollers. I am available normally. I look on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, look into Minnesota, Washington to some extent, Illinois, of uh, those Connect sites. I'm also, you know, keep my eyes on what's going on. I post on Twitter at Ed Zollers is my link there if you want to follow me there. Those of you who are members of one of those state societies and can post on Connect, uh, you know, if you want to post something there and I think I might be able to help, I'll kind of step in as I can. Otherwise, though, hopefully all of your all of your returns got filed. All your extensions are in place. You're all nice and calm now. And I know all of us, I don't know about you, but I have this knack of like waking up at 1 a.m. immediately after this. And then in the back of your mind, you start thinking of something. Did that really get filed? And you know it did because you double-checked and triple-checked everything. But you got, did that really get filed? Or was there a problem? Or And then you want to go back and check it. So, yeah, you know, that that's always great. You wouldn't, I guess you wouldn't be a tax CPA if that didn't worry you. So, in any event... Hopefully you had a good time. Hopefully you're now ready to get to the extension periods, which again, this year will now be a five-month period. Last year it was three months, right? Because we had the way the dates worked. So we now have five months this year for our extension periods uh, and see how things work. And we'll come back here next week looking at the developments in our first week after the filing deadline on current federal tax developments.